John chapter 14. Jesus on the night that he was betrayed at the Last Supper when he was talking to his disciples. He wasn't betrayed at the Last Supper, but uh, the same night that he was betrayed, he was having the Last Supper with his disciples. And he told them some things. John gives us an eyewitness testimony. Um, Many years after the fact, John was thought to be about 90-something years old. And so the time that John writes these things has been about 60 years since Jesus was crucified. Now, the, the letters that John wrote to the church were the last ones that we have record of that were written. And so he has the benefit of knowing every, everything that everybody else has already said. And as a result, he comes back after the fact and gives us an eyewitness account of uh, some things that Jesus said and did and so forth that the other gospel writers were not impressed by the Spirit of God to tell us. And as a result, what I find interesting is that John... Uh, the things that he adds in, especially about that last night with Jesus, the things that he had added in that were left out from the other uh, gospel accounts was information about the Holy Ghost. Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he said in verse 16, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you for a few weeks. That he may get you over the hard places until you realize that I'm really gone. Know that he may abide with you forever. Now, folks, how long is forever? Does forever just go to the end of their lives? I mean, it had been easy for Jesus to say, and I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another, uh, another comforter, even the Spirit of truth who will abide with you for the rest of your lives. That would have gotten the point across, wouldn't it? But he didn't say that. He said, we'll abide with you forever. Because Jesus knows, even as he says, even as he prays in John chapter 17, Father, I'm not just praying for these 12 or these 11, the 12 minus Judas who had betrayed him. I don't pray just for these. I pray for all those that shall believe on them through their word. Well, that's you and me. A lot of the reasons that we believe in Jesus is because of the things that John wrote and certainly the things that Paul wrote and maybe other gospel writers as well. That's the only information we have about God and the only way we have, the only basis we have for believing anything about God in a right manner. So he said. I'll pray the father. And he'll give you another comforter. Uh, that he may abide with you forever. Forever. Jesus is not just talking to the eleven. He's talking to you. The Holy Spirit is to abide with you forever. He goes further in the next verse. Verse 17. He says. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him. But you know him. For he dwelleth with you. And shall be in you. It was a couple of years ago I was reading this verse of Scripture. And the Lord drew to my attention that he's talking about the Holy Ghost that the world can't receive. Well, salvation is for the world, isn't it? So he's got to be talking about a work of the Holy Spirit that goes beyond salvation. Because when you're born again, when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, aren't you recreated? Isn't your spirit recreated or made new by the Holy Spirit? That's the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. I'll take, out of the, I'll take the stony heart out of you and put a new heart, a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. That's the Holy Spirit. So when he talks about even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, he's not just talking about getting saved. He can't be. Now these are people that already believe on him, even though they couldn't yet be saved because he had not yet gone to the cross and paid the price. But he knows full well that these people are in line for salvation because they are followers or disciples of his, right? 
So when he talks about the Holy Spirit, he's not just talking about something that will recreate them. He's talking about something that will empower them, really someone that will empower them. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. One of the most dangerous things you can do is try to get somebody filled with the Holy Ghost that's not born again. Because it opens them up to spiritual things and not all spiritual things are from God. That's why whenever you're talking to somebody about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, even if you've known them for years, have them reaffirm the fact that they are born again and therefore a candidate, a worthy recipient to be filled with the Spirit. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Have you ever noticed the world only believes what it sees? Seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. Well, now if we know him, but we can't see him either. How are we supposed to know him? He's talking about a knowing from the inside. He's talking about an inward witness. John said, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. In other words, he said, there is something that happens at the new birth that causes us to know. I never have been able to relate to people that don't know if they're saved. Christians that struggle, well, maybe I, I thought I was saved, but maybe I'm not. I was there when I got saved. How does somebody not know? Well, the answer is very simple, and I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody because I realize some people really struggle with this. But the fact is, if you don't meditate and focus on the fact of what the Bible says has occurred already on the inside of you, then those things will become indistinct. Spiritual things will become indistinct. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You focus and meditate on the things of God. You focus and meditate on the power of God on the inside of you. You focus and meditate on the righteousness of God that you've been made in Christ Jesus. And it will become real and alive in you. But you neglect those things and look at everything else in the world. And those things will become indistinct. Even though they're real. Even though they're yours. But they'll become indistinct. I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. Even that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither know him, for you know him. How are we going to know him? For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Folks, those are not the same thing. I can go with you to the store, but I can't get in you to go to the store. Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is to be in us. We know that has to be the new birth and with us. Now, these things are fulfilled in the Scripture in the, uh, the next, well, a few days for salvation, John chapter 20 tells us Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, appears to the disciples where they're behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. Well, something happened. Something changed on the inside of them. Now, instead of being behind closed doors, they're openly in the temple worshiping and praising God. They're not afraid of being taken captive anymore. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. Luke twenty four fifty two says, something changed, something happened in, in them. Well, that's what the Bible says does take place when we meet Jesus. But to that same group of people, after they've been changed, after they've been saved, after they've received the Holy Ghost in salvation, been born again, he tells the same group of people, don't leave Jerusalem without the Holy Ghost. He's already commissioned them. He's already told them, go into all the world. But then he says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Spirit from on high. I like the way John Osteen used to say this. Jesus told him, even though you have your commission, even though you have your direction and what you're supposed to do for me, don't even think about having church without the Holy Ghost. They could have. 
They could have gone out into all the world. Somebody could have gotten overzealous and said, well, I don't know about this wait in Jerusalem stuff. He's already told us what to do. Why wait? They could have. Could have told people about Jesus. But Jesus said there's another work of the Holy Spirit that needs to be done if you're going to be effective to accomplish what I've given you to do. That was accomplished in Acts chapter 2. Verse 4 says they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And immediately see the church start operating in power. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the Holy Ghost being poured out. Tells us how the 120 in the upper room were all filled with the Spirit. They all began to speak with other tongues. They spilled out into the street. Peter preached a message. 5,000 people got saved. Acts chapter 3, they started doing miracles. Now pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. Then he may abide with you forever. Then he may abide with you forever. He's already started his work as soon as the church is filled with the Spirit. Now, what good is that speaking with tongues? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says, we've looked at this before. We're just recapping a few things before we go a little bit further. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Another translation says no man hears him. Howbeit in the Spirit, he speaketh mysteries. So what do we see? We see that speaking in other tongues is speaking in the Spirit. We see that speaking in other tongues is to speak mysteries. Wayman's translation says divine secrets. In other words, speaking with other tongues is a supernatural means of communication. Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus didn't talk in tongues when he was here on the earth. Jesus, even though he had the Spirit of God without measure, had a different experience with the Holy Ghost than you and I can have now. That's how important it is. Now, some would say, well, that being filled with the Spirit is not for everybody. Well, that means God doesn't want everybody to have divine communication with him. We see, obviously, clearly, that the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the evidence of, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues was the catalyst, the starting point for miracles in the church. Why would God not want miracles in the church when miracles were the way that the early church drew people in? Oh, some would say, well, we've got something better. Really? You got something better than the power of God? Show me. Well, we've got the whole of Scripture now. We understand. You have got to be kidding me. People are going to trade denominational and religious theology for the power of God. One thing that I found interesting is the Bible says that people took note of Peter and John that they were ignorant and unlearned men, but they had been with Jesus. It's the power that convinced people. Why wouldn't God want that for today? Oh, folks, he does. He does. He wants that for today. Now, we've been talking about the the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this. We talked about this a little bit, but I think it would bear repetition. And uh, there's so much misunderstanding, so much wrong teaching about this that I think we need to see it as we make our comments. Notice in verse 26... Romans chapter 8, it says, Likewise, the Spirit, that must be the Holy Spirit, also helpeth our infirmities. The word infirmities means weakness. It means weakness. We know that Paul's told us, and, and not that he would have to tell us, we know this already. Paul said, we know in part, and we understand in part. Well, that's clear. We don't understand everything the way that we should, do we? You don't have everything about the things of God figured out, neither do I, and neither does anybody else, no matter how they act. 
So he says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, our weaknesses. Well, what weakness is he talking about? There's all kinds of weaknesses in this life. What kind of weakness is he talking about? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. In other words, the weakness he's talking about is a lack of understanding as we could or should have. He doesn't say we don't know how to pray. He says we don't know what to pray for as we ought. He doesn't even say we don't know what to pray for. He just says we don't know what to pray for as we ought to know. So the Holy Spirit, therefore, goes beyond our understanding, the limits of our understanding in our prayer life. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, he's not an it. The Spirit himself maketh groanings which cannot be uttered. Another translation says which cannot be uttered in articulate speech. P.C. Nelson, who is the foremost Greek scholar of his day, said of this phrase that it would be most specifically and literally translated with the groanings which cannot be uttered that should literally be translated God talk. Well, what is God talk? Well, Paul just told us that when we speak in unknown tongues, we're speaking not unto men but unto God. That would make it God talk, wouldn't it? It says, in the Spirit, we speak mysteries or divine secrets. Speaking with tongues is speaking divine secrets with God. How could anybody think that that's not important? So he says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he's not saying that the speaking in tongues is the intercession. He's saying the intercession is the Holy Ghost making up for our infirmities or our weakness or our lack of knowledge in this case. In other words, the Holy Ghost fills the gap. To intercede means to fill up. You can find different translations or different uh, definitions of the word. One, the one definition of the word means to stand in the gap. But really it means uh, something that joins two things together. If there's a gap, if there's a lack, if there's an empty spot, it fills that empty spot. If I introduce you to somebody that you don't know, that I know, both you and them, but you don't know them, if I introduce you to them, then I've interceded. I've joined you two together through acquaintance. Intercession in itself is not always the tongues or the speaking or the prayer. In this case, he's saying the Holy Ghost helps your lack of understanding by giving you words to speak that are inspired by God himself. Sounds pretty important to me. I never have understood why Christians don't use the baptism or use the, uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, meaning that they don't speak in tongues regularly. I know some people had the idea in, in days of old, in old-time Pentecost, that you couldn't do it unless you had a, a feeling of ecstasy or, or some kind of emotional something come on you, the presence of God come on you. But Paul didn't say that was the case. Paul said, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. He's saying you can, do, you can speak in tongues just as easily as you can speak in your known language. He says, according to your will. Why don't Christians use that? I hope you're not in that category. What a waste in so many Christians' lives, not to use the supernatural power source that God has given us. Verse 27, And he, speaking of God, that searches the hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he, the Spirit, maketh intercession, joins together us and God with this God talk, makes up the, the lack in our understanding with giving us utterance and speaking in tongues. 
Because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So notice what he's saying. He's saying whenever you speak in other tongues, you're praying according to God's will. Because you're not, you can't be praying according to your will because you don't know what you're saying. In other words, speaking with other tongues does away with any possibility for selfishness in prayer. Verse 28. And we know. Everybody say we know. And we know. That all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Well, how do we know that? Do we know that everything that happens in life is good and is from God? You wake up in the morning, you're attacked with sickness, and you just say, oh, praise the Lord, this is good. Well, the Bible says Jesus went about doing good and healing. So if healing is good, then sickness can't be good. If Jesus did good by alleviating or removing sickness, how could sickness possibly be good? So what is this talking about? And we know that all things work together for good. He's saying we know that after you speak in tongues, by praying the perfect will of God, praying in other tongues according to the will of God by the utterance of the Holy Ghost, he's saying that after we speak in tongues, we know that God works things out for our good. Why? Because you've prayed his perfect will. Is God ever going to have you pray under any circumstances or any situation whatsoever? Is he going to ever have you pray something contrary to his will? Now, Christians may do that on their own, but God's not going to inspire that. So when you're speaking in tongues, you're praying or speaking according to the will of God, and it causes things to work out in your life. In other words, it's an unseen power source that works things out for you. Who wouldn't want that? Or a better question is, those that receive it, why wouldn't they use that? How many times we hear people say, well, when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord a few things. I bet he's got some questions for you, too. One of those might be, you had the Holy Ghost. The Word tells you that it will work things out for your life. It will bring things to pass according to the will of God for you. Why didn't you use that? Now turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Not only will God work things out for us in our own lives by speaking in other tongues, but there's a work of the Holy Ghost that God wants us to enter into by praying or speaking in other tongues that will benefit mankind. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. I exhort therefore that first of all, everybody say first. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Did you notice he didn't say pray first for you? Paul's impressed by the Holy Ghost to say, now when you pray, don't pray for yourself first. Now why is that? Because you should be taking care of your individual needs and desires and things like that as you go. They shouldn't be piling up so you have to go to prayer about them. He's not saying ignore your own needs. As those needs arise, the Bible already told us what to do for that. Jesus said your heavenly father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. So he must want you to ask him about your needs. You're not informing him. Well, then what are you doing? You're petitioning him in faith, hopefully in faith, so that you receive from him. So he says, first of all, when you come to prayer, first of all, it shouldn't be about you. Well, who should it be about for all men, for other people, for other people? The Holy Ghost seems to be making an emphasis 
at least to Timothy. And remember, Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus at the time Paul writes this. So Paul is clearly impressed or inspired by the Holy Ghost to say things to Timothy so that he can teach them to other people. We still use the words that he wrote to Timothy to teach others as well. And notice what he said. He said, Timothy, teach people or know this so that you can teach people that their prayer life should be made up of praying for other people. I would submit to you folks that the church has done a poor job of that. Most people's idea is we'll pray for me and my family and us and that's it. Let's everybody else take care of themselves. I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now what all men is he talking about? Well, these are the all men that he's including. They're not exclusive to this. Because not all men fall into these categories. But he includes these in the all men group. For kings and for those that are in authority. For kings and those that are in authority. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Now why in the world would he want us to do that? Notice he didn't say I exhort first of all that you complain about your leaders. Folks it takes no special skill to, to find something to criticize or complain about with government. Matter of fact, they're making it so easy nowadays, it's just hard to turn away. But instead, he said, pray for them. Pray for them. Well, pray what? Pray for judgment to come on them? No, folks, judgment is coming on all those that are evildoers, no matter what. You don't have to pray for that. Pray for them for this reason, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Notice he says that your life... The way that your life is going to turn out in quietness and peaceableness or the peace of God has a lot to do with your prayer life for other people. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, what's good and acceptable? Well, not only that you lead a quiet and peaceable life, but that you pray for your leaders. Why is that good and acceptable? Because God would have all men, verse 4, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice that those are not necessarily the same thing. Certainly to be saved you have to come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus. But once you're saved there's still a lot more knowledge of the truth you need to come to. Now here's the question. How do we pray for our leaders? I don't know about you, but to keep myself from criticizing, I have to spend most of that time in tongues. You know, it's a funny thing. When, uh, when I first got around Brother Hagin, uh, Reagan had just been elected to office or just being elected into office in 1980. And, uh, and Brother Hagin would lead us into prayer meetings, and we had some specific times of praying for our country and so forth. And it was an amazing thing in those days how I was able to pray so differently for the country than I can now. And some people, I don't know, uh, well, it seems to me that it's just a, a lack of spiritual perception, but I'm not the one to judge that. But anyway, whatever the case may be. It seems that some people that were there during those times look back and say, well, we've always got to do the same thing. Well, folks, times change. We're at a different place in God's timeline than we were back in 1980. 
But I see the church doing some of the same things that they tried to do then. Back then, some of it worked. Now it's not. I don't know if you remember this. Some of you that are old enough to remember it will remember that the 80s were the days of the moral majority. Well, most of the church, instead of praying for the church, just got involved in politics and the moral majority and was successful. It swept people into office. Well, I see some of the church trying to do that with Tea Party stuff now. But it doesn't have the same results because we're at a different place in God's timeline. Now, the people that Paul is saying to pray for, the leaders, kings, and those that are in authority, are those Christians? Well, one of the leaders of the country that Paul is most affected by, the leader of Rome, the Caesar of Rome, winds up having him killed. It'd be real easy to look at Paul's uh, circumstance and the, the outcome and say, well, his prayer sure didn't work. But is that true? What is the purpose for our praying? Is the purpose for our praying for our country so that our president would be saved? Well, then you get into an argument about is he saved already? Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody that was saved that you could tell by the way they lived? Good luck with that. So now we're wondering. I don't know. I mean, the things that I've heard our president talk about uh, salvation hadn't had anything to do with Jesus. So is that the kind of salvation that you and I know of? Or is it the social justice reconstructing society to help the poor? And I don't know. I guess I would fall into that Romans eight twenty six category. I don't know how to pray as I ought. Thank God the Holy Ghost will give us utterance in other tongues. Now, why does God want us to lead a quiet and peaceable life? Folks, you need to understand something. Everything is about the gospel. Everything is about the gospel of Jesus. It's so funny. Politics is so funny to me. I, I've had to pull away over the last several years from politics because some of the same things that I saw the church doing in the 80s or looking back at it, didn't know it at the time, but looking back at it, seeing what the church was doing in the 80s, some of the same things are trying to come along now, and it's a spiritual thing. You can get so politically involved that you become spiritually ineffective. You can become so conscious of what's going on. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe it's good to know what's going on in our land. But you can focus on what's going on to such a degree that you forget about Jesus. Because what's going on in our land, by and large, is the work of the devil. You focus on the work of the devil more than the work of God, and you become more devil conscious. So several years back, I just had to pull away. There were some things that the Lord told me, kind of showed me where things were and where things were going beforehand. And, of course, people, if you, the things that I said about it, people criticized me and sent me letters and told me I was wrong and all this kind of stuff. You know, nobody sent me a letter now that have turned out to be right. And, of course, there's a lot of name-calling and stuff like that because people are really into their politics. I think some people, at least from my experience, I think some people are more political than they are Christian. And that's a shame. So I had to pull back a little bit. I still know what's going on. I still keep up. But I've had to pull back. Because you can get so politically involved and so politically minded that you become spiritually ineffective. Paul had no illusions about who he was talking about when he said to pray for him. Look at Paul's example. He's persecuted by the, by the Jews, primarily by the Jews, everywhere he goes. It's the Jews that stirred up trouble It's the Jew, against him. It's the Jews that wind up putting him in prison. It's the Jews that led to his beheading or his, his martyrdom 
depending on what you believe about how it happened. And yet Paul says, pray for him. He prayed for the Jews. He said at one place, right into the Corinthians, he said, I'd give up my salvation if only my Jewish brothers would be saved. He's praying that about the people that are working against him, trying to kill him. So apparently he's living what he's instructing and preaching for us to do. First of all, intercessions, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Why is it important for us to lead a quiet and peaceable life? Because if somebody is being oppressed financially, or if there are wars or social conditions where the gospel can't go out, then the, the gospel cannot be, uh, then people can't be reached in the same way as in times of peace. Look at how our, our world has changed. In the 90s when Desert Storm took place, the war with Iraq started. It was uh, shortly, if not immediately, a great success. But because of the threat of chemical weapons and things like that, there was a great revival that took place in the deserts of Iraq with the military. You think that would happen again? With wars nowadays? Seems to me like we're less safe. Seems to me like we've got greater enemies now than we had back then. Seems to me that the world is upside down even more so now than it was just 20 years ago. Well, if war started now, would there be a revival like there was then? Well, from what I've been told by some people that are involved themselves, by some of the chaplains, military chaplains themselves, they can't even really preach Jesus unless they do it on the sly. They can't, sure can't preach Jesus as the only way. So how do you pray? What do you pray for? Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Now, now don't get me wrong, folks. There's a lot of people that will tell you what's going to happen. A lot of people will tell you I'm wrong. A lot of people will say, no, don't worry about it. But it's interesting to me that 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not lest they should receive the glorious light of the gospel. In other words, all the people in this world that are telling us how things are going to go, reassuring us, comforting us, saying, no, just stick with us. Just pass more laws, spend more money, let more people into the country. Don't worry, it'll all turn out well. The Bible says those people are blinded. You know what politics seems to me like? You remember high school when people would run for student council? Be posters up all over the walls. I remember thinking at the time, what a stupid thing to want. Student council president, student council vice president, whatever the, the, the offices were. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't care what goes on in the school. I want to get out of school and get out where the real world is. And it's almost like that's the way it was with politics. It's like politics is about getting your position, holding some kind of place, and failing to realize all the time that there's a real world out there, and I'm talking about a spiritual world, where things really matter, where things really matter. Now, what are we to do? The Bible says to pray for our leaders. Are we supposed to pray for our leaders that they would get saved, and if they don't get saved, things won't work out? No. We're supposed to pray for our leaders. Like I said, in my case, the best way I've found for that is to pray according to the Holy Ghost. Pray in other tongues. 
I start praying with my understanding about some of these guys, and I have to repent. Well, that doesn't do any good. That's just wasting time. Here I am in the flesh, supposed to be praying. But the Holy Ghost won't take you into the flesh. Turn with me over to... um, Turn me to the Old Testament book of Haggai. I came with, I, I came kind of full this morning without really knowing where I'm going to go. You might be able to tell. Notice in Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, notice what God said about the last days. He said, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, the desire of all nations is speaking of, the Bible speaks of, Paul spoke of this, how the earth groaneth and travaileth. Until the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, until Jesus comes back and we receive our redeemed body. That's what the earth is looking for. The earth, which was created perfectly, without any curse upon it, was made subject to the curse of uh, the law of sin and death. The curse of the law. Because of Adam and Eve's transgression against God. And the Bible says the earth, even though it's not a living thing, it was a created thing. It is a created thing. And it says it groans and travails. In other words, there are things that are going on in the earth where the earth is trying to get out from under the law of sin and death. Just like people want to get out from under it when they come to Jesus, the earth is trying to get out from under it itself. And a lot of things that are happening in the earth is a result of the earth groaning and travailing until Jesus comes back. So the desire of all nations that's being spoken of here is Jesus' return, the rapture. And so notice the progression he talks about. He says, I'll shake all nations and the rapture will take place. Of course, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure truly how much more shaking the earth can take. The financial community is shaken to the core. I mean, we're hanging on by a thread. And I'm not saying anything to, to, to scare anybody. If you didn't know this already, and if you're happy you're just being blind and dumb, then, you know, stick your finger in yours for a few minutes, and then you'll be all right. But it doesn't change anything. Looking away from what's happening doesn't change anything. It's kind of ignoring the warning light in your car as you're driving down the road. Let's just tape over that and not look at it, and everything will be all right. Well, good luck with that. So he says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the glory is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Now, the only former house he could be talking about is the dedication of Solomon's temple. You remember when Solomon dedicated the temple, David wanted to build a temple and God said, no, you can't do it. You're a man of war. Your son will do it. He'll be a man of peace. Why was Solomon a man of peace? Because David had whipped everybody else. There was nobody left for Solomon to fight. Solomon was the most greatly armed, heavily armed. Israel was the most well-defended nation on the face of the earth. And that's why he had peace. The devil didn't give up when Solomon was ruling. It's because of the things that David had done to prepare the way. So he says to David, you can't build the temple because you're a man of war, but your son will build it because he's a man of peace. So David said, all right, well, if I can't build it, then I'll raise the money for it. And there were trillions of dollars, present-day dollars, that were given to the Solomon's temple and and, uh, for him to use and utilize and so forth. Well, when Solomon dedicated the temple, this is, uh, what is it, 1 Kings 5, something like that? When Solomon dedicated the temple, it talks about the glory of God filling the house to such a degree that people couldn't stand up. In other words, God was pleased. He put his stamp of approval on it. 
What was his stamp of approval? The manifestation of the Holy Ghost. The manifested presence of God. And this is what the prophet is saying about our day, the end time, the day of the end, the day when the nations will be shaken, the day when the desire of the nations, Jesus returning for the church, shall come. He said, and I will shake all nations and the desire of uh, shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, even greater glory than Solomon had when he dedicated the temple. That sounds pretty good to me. Notice he goes further. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. When you're operating according to God's time and according to his plan, he pays the bills. That's true not only for us as individuals, but for us as a church family. God doesn't have any trouble coming up with the money to do what he needs to do. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Do you know how I read that? Now, this is subject to interpretation. You decide for yourself. But if he's already shaken all nations, the fact that he said the silver is mine and the gold is mine says to me that there's a different situation outside the church than there is inside the church. And then when he says, and in this place, I'll give peace, that indicates to me that the church is going to be the only place in the world that has peace. Because the rest of the world is being shaken from the core. Folks, we need to realize the devil, there's a very real devil in operation in the earth. Very real devil in the operation of the earth. Do you remember in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said it's verse 12. He's talking about putting on the whole armor of God. Starts in verse 10. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It gets, goes on in verse 12 and says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now it doesn't say we don't wrestle. It just says we don't wrestle against people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. It gives you four classifications of the way that the devil's working in the earth. One of them is the rulers of the darkness of this world. Rulers of the darkness of this world. Do you remember Daniel's prayer, Daniel chapter 10? Turn back to Daniel chapter 10. I could refer to some of these things and save some time, but I'm not sure it would be helpful. It'd be better, I think, for everybody to see it and be reminded of it. Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Persia is Iran. The kingdom of Persia equates to basically the country of Iran today. A little bit more territory than what we know of in uh, the boundaries of Iran, but basically Iran. So it says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. Verse 2, in those days I, Daniel, was in mourning, meaning fasting three weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks, 21 days, were fulfilled. Then it tells us about how Daniel prayed. He saw a vision, he prayed, and uh, so forth. Verse 10, skip down with me to verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me. This is after 21 days. He's been fasting and praying for 21 days. He says, then, uh, uh, behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. People get all upset when people fall under the power of God. Wait till God starts setting them up. 
And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, and understand, uh, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set your heart to understand, that's 21 days earlier, set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself fast before thy God. Thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. In other words, he's saying God heard you 21 days ago. Well, why why is it taking him 21 days to get through with the answer that he's looking for? Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, remember in verse 1, Cyrus is the king, the natural, physical, human king of Persia. Now he says there's another authority at work behind the scenes. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, literally an archangel, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, what is he saying? He's saying there's a dual kingdom in operation in the earth. There's a satanic influence behind world governments and countries. Now, there was no hindrance. There was no difficulty. There was no problem whatsoever. From the first day that Daniel started praying, God sent the answer. The problem wasn't with God. The problem wasn't even with Daniel. The problem was the work of the devil, these rulers of the darkness of this world, that that would have to be the classification that this would fall in, wouldn't it? The prince of the kingdom of Persia. In other words, an unseen spiritual force, unseen satanic force at work behind Cyrus, the physical human king. Of that land. That would have to be the rulers of the darkness of this world. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me low low one in 20 days. 21 days. So much so that that Michael. One of the big dogs. Big honchos. Big cheese. Angels. Had to come help him. I wonder if it still works that way today. We have no reason to think that it doesn't, especially with what Paul told us about wicked spirits in the heavenlies and the rulers of the darkness of this world. Knowing that there are rulers of the darkness of this world behind the um, world powers. And notice that this speaks of Iran. This same prince of the kingdom of Persia is at work today. It's one of the reasons why Iran is such a threat to the world. Turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Back to Ezekiel 28. Let me show you something else that the Bible says here. I'm going to start in verse 1. Ezekiel said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus. Tyrus is the kingdom of Lebanon. What we know of as modern-day Lebanon. Same places we had trouble with today, they had trouble with back then. Why? Because of these evil spirits that are working behind the rulers. Son of man saying to the prince of Tyrus. Thus saith the Lord God. Because thy heart is lifted up. And thou hast said I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man. So he's talking about a human being then. Yet thou art a man and not a God. Though thou set thy heart as the heart of God. And then he goes on to say some things. About him and about his kingdom. Skip with me down to verse 11 now. Moreover, here's more of the prophecy. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. First guy was called the prince of Tyrus. 
the, the positions were reversed from Daniel 10. The prince of Tyrus was referred to be as a man. Now he's saying prophesy unto the king of Tyrus, the king of Lebanon. And say unto them, thou saith, thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sun, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanships of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. This can't be a man, folks. No man was in the Garden of Eden except Adam. Nobody walked upon the holy mountain of God. No human being has walked upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So it's a created being, but it can't be human. So who is it? talking about Satan. So what is it telling us? We've got two examples, really even more. Uh, Luke chapter 4, for example, when Jesus was tempted of the devil, one of the temptations was the devil took him up into a, uh, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in in a moment of time. And he said, I will give you the glory of all these kingdoms for they have been delivered unto me. If you'll just fall down and worship me. Now, Satan said, that the glory of the kingdoms, literally the authority of the earth's kingdoms, had been delivered unto him. That's world governments, folks. It's foolish for us to think that because we are a so-called Christian nation that there are not evil spirits working against our country too. It's foolish for us to think there's not a prince of the kingdom of the United States that's working behind the scenes. Now, some people will say, well, the devil was lying to Jesus. If he was lying, then why didn't Jesus call him a liar? Why did Jesus respond to what he said, what the Bible indicates was a bona fide temptation? If it was a lie, it's not a real temptation. If you were to come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, I'll give you $100 million if you'll just renounce Jesus. That's not a real temptation to me because I know you. You don't have the money. Do you see the point? For the devil to offer Jesus something that that Jesus knew he didn't have... Where's the temptation in that? Jesus responded and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou shalt worship the Lord, and him only shalt thou serve. So we've got three examples, and we could find more, but we've got three just right off the top where it shows us that there is a spiritual ruler, a spiritual uh, influence, evil influence, satanic influence, working behind the scenes in world governments. Same thing's true in our country. It's becoming more and more prevalent in our country. Now, why is that? I think for two reasons. I think number one is because of the time that we live in. We're at the end, folks. But secondly, I think it's because the church, the American church, got complacent. And we didn't do what we should have done in praying. Times were good, and so we thought, well, everything's okay. We don't need to pray. We don't need to do what the Bible said. And any time you fail to, to act on the word of God... To follow the word's instruction, the devil gains ground on you. Because he never quits. He never gives up. Never, never, never. So we see that there's a dual kingdom from what the word of God identifies. That's why the Bible says Satan is the God of this world. And he blinds people's minds to the truth. 
He wants to take control through world governments. You can see what's going on. You can see throughout history what's going on. Satan would pick a man, and then there would be a supernatural influence. I know when, uh, before we started the church, we uh, did some ministry in, in Germany, a couple of different trips to Germany, and um, there was, uh, uh, we've lost contact with them over the years. But there were some good friends of ours that had a church there in Munich, still do. And uh, he's American, New Jersey guy, and she's German. And somehow or another, I think she came to the States, they got married, and then went back over and started the church, started working for God over there. But um, the first time I was there, the first time I'd ever been to Germany, so I was really interested. I've, I've always been kind of a history buff, enthusiast, whatever. And so World War II history was really uh, important to me. And so I'd ask her questions about it. And she pulled out a book, and it was German, so she was having to translate it for me. But she said it was uh, some account, uh, eyewitness account, of uh, somebody that had been there when Hitler was, uh, was rising to power and stuff like that. And one of the things that she took out and, uh, and read to me was really, really interesting. Because if you, if you do any study of, of Hitler's life and find out some of his uh, uh, early endeavors before he became known and stuff, the guy was just a jerk. I, I, I don't know really. I mean, he was a nobody. He was a nothing. I mean, he was, he was like the nerdy guy that, that you would look back to in school and think, that guy's never going to be anything unless he gets into computers. <laughs> I mean, he was just, just a nobody. And then all of a sudden, he winds up with all this power and all this momentum. Well, this was talking about it. It was some famous speech that he gave at uh, somewhere. I don't remember. But, uh, but the, the, the author of the book, who was there present, he said that the guy got up and stood up and started talking. And he said he wasn't even making sense. And then it said there was like something came over him. There was like a power or something. Some unseen force that came over him. And then all of a sudden he had the crowd in the palm of his hands. They called it an anointing. Here's an unsaved law- author. An eyewitness. Giving an eyewitness account of what happened. And he called it an anointing. He said there was an unseen power. An anointing. They came over him, and all of a sudden he had the crowd in his hand. And he said that began to sweep the nation. Well, tell me this. How do people that are blind, blind to the truth, how is the devil able to use them? I mean, you look back to hit in history to the people that, that did the most wicked things, Hitler, Stalin, uh, Pol Pot, some of these guys uh, in, in history that, that destroyed millions of people's lives and stuff. They were the same way. They were nobodies. It weren't, they weren't the smartest guys around. It wasn't their intellect. It wasn't their great ability in some way or another that brought them to power it was an unseen force behind them folks satan's best is a stupid guy because he's blinded to the truth so there's a dual kingdom set up that's why it's important for us to pray that's why it's important for us to pray now what are we supposed to pray well we just saw in haggai chapter 2 we just saw that God's plan is to fill the church with glory, fill this house with greater, greater glory than Solomon's temple. Turn with me over to Zechariah chapter 10. You guys know this one. I spend a lot of time with this. Folks, I've got to tell you, I spend most of my praying right here. First Timothy 2 for me is the equivalent of Zechariah 10. I don't go through and pray for President Obama. I don't pray for the Supreme Court. I don't pray for the, the leaders in Congress. Because if I do, if I get into my head, my prayer time is done. 
so I stay out of my head. The extent of my praying with my understanding is, now, Lord, you gave me instruction to pray according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, to pray for the leaders of our nations. I need the Holy Ghost's help to pray according to your plan and purpose. And I spend time praying in tongues. Now, if something comes to my mind in the meantime while I'm praying in other tongues, then I'll pray that out in English. But I spend most of my time fulfilling 1 Timothy chapter 2, the instructions given to me in 1 Timothy chapter 2 by speaking in other tongues, praying in other tongues, praying by the Spirit. Now, you can, I don't care how you qualify that. Maybe that's just my spiritual immaturity. Maybe I'm just not spiritually mature enough to to be able to get into my head and stay in my head and pray with my understanding and so forth. But even with the greatest understanding I could ever come up with, it's going to be lacking as, as far as what the Holy Ghost could give me, isn't it? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm letting the Holy Ghost do my praying for me. He doesn't pray for you. He just helps you pray. He's the helper. A helper without a guide, a helper without a partner is of no value. You're the one to pray, but he helps you. Well, here's what I pray. Zechariah 10, verse 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Now, let me stop here long enough to to, to, uh, explain what it means when it talks about rain. When, uh, When God led Israel to the promised land, he told them that it was land that was flowing with milk and honey. He said it's watered with the rains of heaven. But then he identified and specified what those rains were. He said that there would be an early rain. Now, this was different than the land of Egypt that they came out of, and they've been wandering in the wilderness for a couple of years up until that point in time until they came to the edge of the promised land. It's different than anything they had before. In Egypt, they had these treadmill-type things that would pump water. The only water available was the Nile. It never rained, and so they had to take the Nile River... And, and pump it out and irrigate other places so they'd have food and crops and so forth. Well, God said to Israel, and this was one of the big attraction, uh, big incentive points. He said, the land that I'm leading you to is not like the land where you're watered by your foot, meaning the treadmill things. But it's watered from the rains of heaven. It's dependent on heaven. Now, folks, everything in the promised land is a type of what belongs to us as believers under the new covenant. We don't have a geographical boundary that God has said, this is yours. We have a spiritual boundaries or spiritual territory that he said, this is yours. Well, what's ours? Righteousness, healing, blessing, favor, help, power, and so forth. So our territory is not a geographic one like Israel, the nation of Israel has. Our territory is a spiritual blessing that accompanies us wherever we go, wherever God leads us to go. So our spiritual land, our promised land, is supposed to be just as dependent on the rains of heaven as the land of, Egypt, or the land of Israel is for them. One, on uh, both of our trips to Israel over the last, well, I guess the first time we went was uh, 2002. We went about six months after 9-11. Had the whole country to ourselves. It was wonderful. Went back a few years later. But in both cases, the guides made a point to say every day the people of Israel pray and say, thank you, Father, for rain or send the rain. Something to that effect. Everybody is taught every day to pray. Now, they think they're heard from them much speaking. It's not working real well for them. But they pray. They recognize that the rain, without the rain, their country is dust. 
And so God said to Israel about the promised land, he said, I'll give you the former rain and the latter rain. Now, the former rain was supposed to soften the ground so that they could plant crops and so that the seed would take root. The latter rain was to come at time of harvest to set the fruit or the crops so that it could be reaped and would be good to eat. Well, that's the rain that it's talking about. That's the rain that God uses as a type of the Holy Spirit for the church. The former rain and the latter rain. Now, what's the former rain? The former rain is that which enables that work of the Holy Spirit, that move of God, that outpouring of the Holy Ghost that helped to set the seed. That's what Acts 2-4 was about. That's why Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem without the Holy Ghost. Because without the rain... Without the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, which is the type of the rain, the seed that you would plant would do no good. And see, folks, no matter how good the seed is, no matter how good the ground is, without the rain, it's ineffective. It won't produce. You remember Paul talked about this writing to the Corinthians. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Well, what did Paul plant? The seed of the word of God. What did Apollos water with? He watered with the word of God, the teaching of the word of God. Paul planted the same thing that Apollos taught. But the fact that they hadn't heard heard it before made it planting from Paul and then watering from Apollos. But then God gave the increase because it was planted and then watered. That's a type that God uses throughout the the whole of the Old Testament for Israel, literal Israel, and for us, the church, spiritual Israel. The former reign... The outpouring of the Holy Ghost on Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that set the seed. In other words, it enabled or empowered them to do a supernatural work from the teaching of the gospel. They could have taught the gospel the day before. Would have had little if, no, if any results whatsoever. But with the move of the Spirit of God, 5,000 people were swept into the kingdom. And here's where the church tries to do their own thing. The church still tries to work like they're in the land of Egypt where they're watering with their foot. They come up with programs. The best program in the world, if it doesn't have the wind of the Holy Ghost behind it or the rain of the Holy Ghost along with it, will not produce any good. But you can come up with the simplest idea and it be watered with the rains of heaven and produce miraculous results. But see, man is so used to trying to do it on his own. Man is so used to trying to come up with the, the, the smart way to do things. Well, folks, the smart way to do things is to find God's plan and go with that. doesn't always make your name great, but it brings supernatural results. So if that's the early rain, then what's the latter rain? The latter rain is that which will bring in the precious fruit of the earth. James chapter 5 verse 7 says, Behold, the husbandman waiteth. Talking about Jesus, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. Well, we know he's waiting because he hadn't come. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And he has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. There's an outpouring of the Holy Ghost that's promised to us. There's an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now, what's it going to look like? Well, I would assume it's going to look like things that we've seen before. I would assume it's going to look the same way that it did. I mean, rain is rain. Early rain and latter rain. The only difference is timing. So I would assume it's going to look the same way that it did before, where people are going to be swept into the kingdom of God in multitudes and healings and miracles will take place. So ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. It all comes down to the right time. 
are we living in the time of the latter rain? That's the real question. Well, I don't see how the earth could be shaken much more. I mean, most countries are hanging on by a thread now. I mean, we see some things that have happened just in the last few weeks where Islam, a branch of Islam, a specific branch of Islam is sweeping through and and giving no quarter to even those that claim to believe in Allah too. If they'll do that with their own, what will they do with the rest of the world? Now, don't worry. Don't, Don't get me wrong. I'm not worried about that at all. I have absolute confidence that God will deal with Islam in one day's time. Islam is nothing to be afraid of. I'm kind of, I, I use the phrase myself, but I'm, I, I get kind of tickled at the phrase radical Islam because what's identified and defined as radical Islam is just people that believe what Allah said or what uh, Muhammad said. There is no religion of peace when it comes to Islam. You know, I have people warn me, don't say things like that, Pastor Mike. Just don't say things like that. That stirs up people. Just don't say things like that. I had a, a sheriff a deputy tell me that one time. He, he was in a service and, and uh, or uh, followed some of our services, and he heard me say something like that. And he said, you know, you, you do well just not to say things like that. I'm not bothered by that at all, folks. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And I'm not against anybody. Uh, well, I'm pretty much against the devil. But I'm not against anybody. But I'm not going to close my eyes to what he is. I'm not going to stick my head in the sand and, and take some politically correct position just because that might be popular in certain circles. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds. Margin of my Bible says lightnings. It's talking about a power, the power of God in demonstration. Well, what do we see in Solomon's day when the, uh, the, uh, the glory of the former house? What do we see? We see the manifestation of God's power and a, uh, I'm sorry, a manifestation of his presence, the glory cloud, and a demonstration of his power. That's the same thing that we saw in the days of the early church, Acts chapter 2. We saw a manifestation of God's presence. Fire fell on all of them, and they began to speak with other tongues. And we saw a demonstration of his power, healings and signs and wonders. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. In other words, it indicates that the latter rain is not going to be one major outpouring, but it's going to be a lot of smaller pourings, outpourings all over the earth. Showers of rain. Now, what's it going to produce? To every one grass in the field. That's the precious fruit of the earth. That's that precious fruit of the earth. That's that precious fruit of the earth that Jesus is coming back for. Folks, that's what it's all about. That's exactly what it's about. The precious fruit of the earth. That's why Paul said, writing to Timothy, I exhort that first of all. First of all, pray for other people first. Pray for other people first. Make supplications. Offer prayers. Intercessions. The difference between supplications and intercessions, in a nutshell, is supplication is praying for people that know, the, know God. They're part of God's family. Intercession is praying for people that are outside of God's family, those that are lost. You may pray similarly, but depending on who it's prayed for makes the difference between those two. And then finally it says giving of thanks. Thank God for President Obama. Now you may have thought I just lost my salvation right there. 
When Paul wrote that about the leaders of his day, folks, these are not saved people. These are people that are not making godly decisions. Caesar winds up making a decision in his case. Nero, who was the Caesar of the day, made a decision in his case that cost him his life. But when you realize that there's a greater work and a greater power at work, the plan of God that no man can stop, then you don't worry about who's doing what. Oh, I used to get all torn up about the immigration bills and the the stimulus packages and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. Doesn't mean you have to like it. Doesn't mean you certainly doesn't mean you have to agree with any of it. But it doesn't matter. God's greater than all those things. Doesn't matter if both parties join up and become one party all working against us. Which is pretty close to what's going on now, it seems like. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Let me tell you a story about uh, history. Constantine was a Roman emperor in 312 AD. And he was coming out against uh, an enemy. He had a battle to fight against his enemy. And he knew that the only way he was going to win this battle is if he got God on his side. Now, you got to realize in those days, they had a God for everything. Sun God, moon God, water God, fire God, grass God, sheep God, you know, whatever. I don't know. And so he's, he doesn't, he's, it's not like he's praying to the God of heaven. He's not like he's praying to the Lord, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ or anything like that. But he's praying for divine help. And God gave him a vision. Our Father God gave him a vision. And in that vision, the middle of the daytime, in that vision, he saw across the, the way onto the battlefield, the hill that they were going to fight the battle on, he saw a shining cross. And the Lord spoke to him. And said, you will win this battle. And that cross shall be your victory in further battles. Well, his name was Constantine. He won that battle. And as a result, um, his conversion is a little bit, uh, well, let's just say it this way. He didn't get saved the way you and I get saved. And so some people really question whether or not he was really converted or whether or not he was really saved. But the, the, the short of the story is because he recognized that the cross, which identified the God that was telling him what he was telling him, the God that gave him the battle, because he recognized that the cross was the significant factor, he made Christianity the state religion. And he began to favor Christianity. He began to build churches and and uh, um, places of worship and stuff like that. And it was the worst thing that could have ever happened to the church. Now, it's on, on one hand, from a social or political standpoint, you might think that Christians of that day would think this is wonderful because now we're finally accepted. No longer are we being persecuted like we were before. And up until that point in time, Christianity was considered to be a threat to every ruler and to every kingdom. And so Christianity, wherever it had grown and wherever it had developed, was always met with resistance. But the thing about it is, when that resistance came about, when that persecution took place, the church was still a church of power. You look back through church history records and you can find that until the end of the 300s, healing was an accepted thing in the church. I mean, the world recognized, we don't know what it is, we don't believe in their God, but man, people get healed and miracles take place in those churches. 
Well, that became part of the threat. And so that's why kingdoms and rulers would try to squash it. But not now once Constantine was a Roman emperor. He made it the state religion. Well, you naturally can understand what would happen. People that aren't saved, people that don't care about God, people that don't know about Jesus or anything else, started running into the church for the favor of the government. They began going into the ministry for the money that they could make from the church. It was the greatest time of corruption and, in my opinion, hypocrisy in the history of the world. And from the end of the 300s on, the only ones that maintained the power of God were the ones that were considered on the fringe and not the accepted part of the church. Now, folks, I want to remind you what Paul said. Paul wrote in what's commonly called his thorn. Paul was talking about persecution. He talked about the things that, he, that uh, the Jews stirred up, Jews primarily, the devil was behind it, but the things that the Jews primarily stirred up against him wherever he would go. These same people that he prayed would get saved. He'd be willing to give up his salvation if they'd get saved. They're trying to have him killed every time he steps foot outside his door. And that's what he prayed about. He prayed and asked God three times, Lord, take this messenger of Satan. Take this, this satanic assignment away from me. He seemed to come to the understanding that the devil had a specific work against him rather than just different people in different situations for different reasons. Not liking him, but he recognized that there was this unseen force, just like that works against governments, that was working against him in the preaching of the gospel and the ministry that God had given him. So he prayed three times. He said, Lord, let this thing be taken from me. Take this thing away from me. Well, Jesus has not redeemed us from persecution. Jesus answered and says, my grace is sufficient for you. The reason he said my grace is sufficient for you, which is the same thing as saying my strength is with you. Is because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul goes further to say that those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Which explains why most of the church isn't being persecuted. Got to live right. Got to take a stand for the truth. Got to live according to the word to find persecution. Otherwise, you just become the accepted religion. So what did Paul conclude? He said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. Now, infirmities doesn't mean sickness. The infirmity he's talking about is the weakness that comes against me because of all the persecutions that the devil and the Jews are stirring up against me. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, for when I physically am weak, then am I strong. I take pleasure in my infirmities so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. In other words, he's saying, I find the power of God when I'm persecuted. Folks, if the glory of God and the power of God is promised to the church, guess what that means? Look at the backward steps that Christianity has taken as far as the government is concerned over the last 20 years. Really in the last, what, 10? It seems to be increasing more and more and more. Why? Because the devil who is behind government systems, is trying to stir up the heat on the church. Now, why is the devil so interested in this? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28? Turn with me to, or Matthew chapter 24, I guess it is. Let me see if I can find it and you can turn with me. Matthew 24. I think it's verse 14. But we'll see. 
Yep, Matthew 24, verse 14. Here's why this is so important. Here's why the church needs to pray. Here's why you need to make your prayer life about other people. Here's why you need to spend so much time praying in the Spirit for our world. Here's why. So that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life so that the gospel can go forward. And here's the reason that the devil is fighting it so much. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. The word witness means with proof or evidence. In other words, with power. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, not unto everybody, not unto every individual, but unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Remember, Jesus went into the temple one time and he was uh, casting the devil out of somebody and the evil spirit spoke up and said, Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? You remember that? There is a time coming, folks. The devil knows his time is short. And he knows that when the gospel gets preached, his jig is up. That's when the end comes. So what did God do in the early days of the church, in Acts, beginning in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, what did God do to enable the church to preach the gospel? He poured out the Holy Ghost. What then, if the gospel being preached and the latter rain is also promised to us, is God going to do at the end so that the precious fruit of the earth comes forth so that Jesus can come back for the church? An outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. How much time we got, Pastor Mike? I don't know. I'm expecting to be able to finish this message, but beyond that, I have no idea. (laughs) Could be any time, folks. Could be any time. There is no sign. There is no prophecy. Yet to be fulfilled, except the shout from heaven for Jesus to return for the church. That's it. And you are the only generation that's ever been able to say that. Never before. There have been people throughout the, throughout the years, in, uh, in decades past, that have made excuses for, well, maybe this is not going to have to be fulfilled because of this and because of that. There have been all kinds of excuses made throughout the years, but this is the only time ever in the history of the church, in the history of the world, that we can say with absolute certainty that every prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus' return is imminent. He could come any time. Any time. Why doesn't he? Because he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And the thing that brings about that precious fruit of the earth is the latter rain, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, a move of the Spirit of God, a move of God's power, a demonstration of His power, a manifestation of His Spirit, His presence. To bring about the thing that He wants most, which is a family. So our job is to pray.